Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. Our Sunday services have now moved online and you can tune in every week for worship, prayer and our weekly sermon by going to christchurchlondon.org forward slash church hyphen at hyphen home. We're now going to hear the talk from this week's Church at Home service. Today's reading is from Colossians 2, 6-23. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the eternal spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by this unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belonged to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Hello, I'm Sarah and I help to lead our Mile End service in East London. I'm delighted to be speaking to you today. I must admit, when I first read these few verses, I was a little bit thrown, very confused. Uh, They are not the easiest um, verses, few sentences to understand, but the more I read them, the more I looked into them, read around them, uh, the more encouraged I was and reminded of God's grace. So I trust that the same will be true for you today as we look at each verse in a little bit more detail. 
So in the midst of the sermon series, uh, looking at the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, and in this section, he's warning them against two dangerous things that were taking hold of their community, and then reminds them of the truth of who they are in Christ Jesus. These two issues were concerning mystical polytheism and rigid observance of the Torah. Not things that may instantly seem applicable to our lives today, but as we look at each one in turn, we'll see that there are parallels to challenges that we now face, and that actually the antidote to both is just as relevant and just as essential to us as it was for the Colossians. So firstly, mystical polytheism. Verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. So what does Paul mean by hollow and deceptive philosophy and elemental spiritual forces? Well, commentators say that the philosophy that was encroaching into the early church here was an eclectic mix of early Gnosticism, Greek philosophy and Jewish mysticism. In essence, the church was being swayed and pulled in different directions by elements of different religions. Now, at the time, polytheism, the belief that there are many different gods, was prevalent in the ancient world. The Romans, for example, had Neptune, god of the sea, and Mars, god of war. In fact, all of our planets in the solar system are named after these ancient gods. And the Colossians were being led to believe that Jesus is just one of many deities to be added to the collection. Now today, this idea of there being multiple gods may not be as common, but we do live in a society that likes to pick and choose elements of faith, where people are far more comfortable calling themselves spiritual than religious, where the idea of absolute truth is called into question, and anyone who says that their beliefs are categorically true is seen as arrogant and narrow-minded. But isn't it exhausting to constantly be searching for spiritual fulfilment in a world where we're told that there is no such thing as truth. It may seem liberating at first, but with nothing concrete to stand on, we end up being, as Paul says in another of his letters, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Jesus gives us a firm foundation to stand on and removes any sense of ambiguity. He says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't respect people of other faiths or of none. Of course we should. It's not about telling others that they're wrong and we're right, but it's about having a strength in our own convictions, of being able to give a reason for the hope that we have. We have to individually take responsibility for digging into the claims of what Jesus said until we are convinced that they were true. What he said was true. He was the son of God. And then... Once we've reached that conclusion, just be willing to share it graciously with anyone who may be interested. The second issue facing the church at Colossae was some false teaching on how they needed to observe the Torah. The Torah was the Old Testament law that God had given to Moses, setting up his covenant promise with the Israelites. It gave guidance and instruction for how God wanted his people to live, and included everything from what they should eat to how they should treat others in order to maintain their relationship with God. So the Colossians were being told that if they were to receive God's forgiveness, they had to observe all these rules and regulations of the Torah. Verse 16 says they were being judged for eating unclean things, for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or the Sabbath. The leaders were overlooking the unconditional grace that God had extended to every one of them through Jesus. 
because as Paul says in verse 17, these rules were a shadow of the things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Sort of like me reading a menu before going to a restaurant. I don't know if you do this, but if I'm going to the menu for dinner, I love to go online beforehand and read the menu in anticipation. Perhaps go on their Instagram feed, check out a few photos of their food. I can visualise it. I can imagine how it's going to taste as I eat it. I get really excited about going. But imagine if you turn up at a restaurant and instead of being asked what you'd like to order, the waiters just put a plate down in front of you. Now, this is a fancy restaurant, so it's one of those plates with a metal cloche over the top. And once everyone has a plate in front of them, all the waiters reveal, lift the cloches and reveal what's underneath at the same time. Bon appétit, they cry as they walk off. You all look down and on your plate is the menu. Mmm, delicious, you think. So everybody picks it up and just starts reading it, salivating over how delicious the food must be. Thinking, oh, that sounds wonderful. Oh, have you seen this on this? Oh, yes. And you start just having conversations about the menu. Then after an hour of good conversation and wistful thinking, you just pay the bill, get up and leave. You're happy just to read the menu and imagine what may have been. So that's sort of what the false teachers were doing to the Colossians by telling them that they still had to follow the Old Testament law to earn God's forgiveness. What they didn't know or had forgotten was that the actual food was available to them. The chef was out the back the whole time, ready to serve them this beautiful, delicious creation, and they were settling for just reading about it instead. You see, the Torah and the Old Testament rules were written down to help the Israelites draw close to God, to imagine what living in the freedom of forgiveness might be like. But that was all just a foretaste of the real thing, the new life, freedom and restored relationship that's been made possible through Jesus. So we've established a problem. The Colossians were seeking spiritual fulfilment in other religions and also trying to earn God's forgiveness by observing the Torah. But both of these were overturned at the cross by Jesus. Verses 9 to 10 say, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. God isn't divided into different beings, one representing the sea, one war, nor is he an intangible higher power that manifests in different ways. All the fullness of God lives in human form, in Christ Jesus. And as God, he is higher than any other power or authority, be that those in the church that were leading the Colossians astray, or any other spiritual force that they were or we are distracted by. And notice that this isn't just a lofty religious idea. We come into it too. In Christ, you have been brought into fullness. The Colossians were being told that they were lacking, that they needed to uphold all the former rules of the Torah to be considered holy, worthy of God's love. Paul states that Jesus is the very definition of spiritual fullness, being fully God and fully human. And since we are one with him, we now share in that completeness with God and are spiritually full. That's not all. As the message puts it in verse 11, entering into this fullness is not something you figure out or achieve. It's all been done for us. Jesus nailed the legal requirements of the law to the cross and achieved what the law foreshadowed, new life and restored relationship with God. Verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. 
Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, as a sub-editor, I feel like this sentence could do with a full stop or two. But what Paul is effectively saying is that we are new creations as a result of what Jesus has done. In the Old Testament, circumcision was used as a physical mark of belonging to God. It was part of the commitment that God made with Moses and was tied into the Old Testament law. Paul explains that by sharing in Jesus' death and resurrection, we have been metaphorically, um, metaphorically circumcised. The New Living Translation puts it like this. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision by the cutting away of your sinful nature, removing all the things that stood between us and God. When the Romans crucified criminals, they fastened a notice to the cross to tell the world what the crime this person had committed. In Jesus' case, they mocked him with a sign that said, King of the Jews. But just imagine that every single sin that had ever been, has been since, or will ever be committed was written down on a piece of paper and nailed to that cross. Every murder, every abuse of trust, every lie ever uttered, every lustful thought, every single time we've chosen our way over God's way and fallen out of step with him. All of it was nailed to the cross and Jesus paid the price so that we don't have to. Paul goes on, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Just want to pause for a moment for a little side note on sin. There are two dangers when it comes to thinking about rules and God. The first is that we believe that we need to be perfect in order for God to love us. And if we slip up even once, that that will ruin all our chances of ever having a relationship with him. The second is that we think that all the laws and rules of the Bible are now irrelevant because of what Jesus has done. And therefore we can do whatever we want. Well, actually, neither is true. God's love and forgiveness is unconditional. We can't earn it or blow it by how we act. However, that doesn't mean that our actions don't matter to God. He still grieves when we choose our way over his way. And they're not arbitrary rules. If God created us, doesn't it stand to reason that he knows better than we do what we need, what will benefit us and what will drag us down? Through the law, the rules, if you like, laid out throughout the Bible, God gives us a picture of life as it was meant to be. A life where we flourish, bearing his image, living in a community with other people who bear his image. Now, if we fall short of that vision through our own actions, it's not that we don't get a relationship with God. We get that through his grace and what Jesus did for us. But we do fail to become all that God intended us to be. One of my favourite quotes is this from C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, falling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. 
we are far too easily pleased. We are being offered a holiday by the sea, a gourmet street course meal. Why would we settle for anything less? All that being the case, how then should we live? Well, it would be pointless to carry on worshipping other gods that have been disempowered by the true God. And it would be ridiculous to keep practising laws for the sake of earning God's forgiveness when they're powerless to do so. Verse 23. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Which sort of begs the question, well then, what does? Well, that's what next week's talk is about, so you have to come back to find out. But in summary, chapter 3, verse 2 says, Think about the things of heaven, not the things of the earth. Focus on the things you want to foster and grow, not the things you're trying to stop doing. Fill your mind with God. The thoughts and temptations won't go away. That's part of life on this side of eternity. But they may well have less of a hold on you. Now, I want to put out two phrases that Paul uses here. This notion of being alive with Christ or merely just following self-imposed worship, or in some translations, self-made religion. I think he's asking us if we want to settle for self-made religion, or we want to be truly alive in Christ. So what do I mean by self-made religion? Well, just like the Colossians trying to religiously observe the Torah, there are forms of spirituality which may look good, but are actually powerless when it comes to being alive in Christ. See if you can identify with any of these. Um, a verbose prayer life, at least in front of other people. Now, I don't know about you, but it sometimes feels like there's different levels of prayer that you're expected to level up to as you progress in your Christian faith. At some point, this is the most terrifying level, uh, you're expected to pray in front of other people, out loud in a group. And, and then you sort of feel like, oh, I really should pray something a bit more impressive to compete with everyone else. I, honestly, I can't tell you the number of times that I have sat in a group with good friends who all know me well, and you know I don't need to worry about them judging me, but my inner monologue has gone along the lines of, oh, that was a really good prayer they just prayed. I can't, I can't match that. Oh, what if I start praying and then I forget what I'm saying, or I say something stupid, or I run out of things to say, and people will think, oh, that was a rubbish prayer. Maybe I'll just like rehearse it in my head first. And so I sit there planning what I'm going to say and stall so long that the, the prayer ends and I lose my chance to pray and at all. If you can relate to that, can I just categorically say that it's not how God expects us to pray? He doesn't want our fancy words or our elaborate ideas. He just wants us to bring our hearts and our souls to him. He wants to meet us where we're at. He doesn't need us to come up with incredible sounding prayers. This wants us to be like children running into the arms of our father. Okay, how about this? Knowing your Bible back to front. You know there's people who can just come up with the exact phrase and exact passage that you need at the right time and then just casually drop the precise reference in at the end. Very impressive, not me. Or how about this last one, which I'm definitely guilty of, and I think is particularly prevalent in London and other big cities. Being busy for God. Going to all the meetings, uh, serving on all the teams, volunteering as much as possible. Now, these are all good things. Prayer, knowing your Bible, 
serving, being part of our church community. But if they're not motivated by the right thing, if they're not backed up with a relationship with God, then we'll just surface level religion and we'll eventually crumble. I speak from experience. It's very easy to act like everything's fine. You show up on a Sunday, you sit there paying attention through the talk mostly, you go to prayer meetings and connect group, you pray good sounding prayers, you give regularly. But the reality is that that's the first time you've spoken to God all week. The Bible is stuck on a shelf gathering dust. You may give to the church, but can you actually say that everything you have belongs to God? Our faith may look impressive, but God looks at the heart. How's your relationship with God right now? Would you describe it as being alive or merely drifting along? Maybe even drifting apart? If we're honest, I think a lot of us would identify with that right now. I know I do. But that's not the life that Jesus promised us. Jesus came to earth, was crucified, buried and rose again so that we would have life in abundance. So that we could be alive in Christ. And pass that freedom on to others. When I was nine years old, I went on a school trip to the Isle of Wight for the week. We did all the touristy things, went to the Needles, uh, visited Osborne House, and one memorable day, went to a farm. Now, I don't remember the animals we saw or what else we did on the farm, but what I do remember is one of the teachers giving us a lesson in electricity. Bear with me here. We were told to all line up in a row uh, and hold each other's hands tightly. Now, having dutifully followed instructions, our teacher then drew our attention to an electric fence. Now, this was the 90s, and clearly health and safety was a little bit more relaxed back then, uh, because our teachers had decided in their infinite wisdom that the best way to uh, demonstrate to us how electricity was conducted was to electrocute us. So this poor schoolgirl who had inadvertently stood next to this fence without realising what she was signing up for was nominated as the person who was meant to reach out and grab this electric wire. This is full-on Zimbardo-style psychology submitting to authority. The teacher told her to do it. She, Julie, looking a bit scared, all of us now gripping hands very tightly, being quite terrified, reached out gingerly and wrapped her hand around the electric wire. Now, I like to think that the teachers and the farmer discussed this idea before just letting us loose on the electric fence um, and lowered the voltage as low as it would go, because I'm pleased to report there were no explosions, no fires, no injuries, no crazy hairstyles as a result. Um, but what I do remember is this electricity, this jolt, literally, you can almost visibly see it as it moved down the line. Um, as in each, one by one, we were sort of like, <laughs> came a bit alive with this electricity flowing through us. And, of course, by the time it got to the last person, we were absolutely over the moon. We thought it was the best thing ever. We wanted, were begging to be able to do it again. And in a way, that's what being alive in Christ should be like. A jolt of electricity that flows through us and passes to those who we meet. But notice that for that to work, we had to hold hands. We had to be close to one another. The first brave soul had to reach out and touch that fence. And if any one of us had let go, if the circuit would have been broken, if someone at the end of the line had got fed up with waiting for it and let their hand drop, not only would they have never shared their experience with us, but they would have stopped every person further down the line from experiencing it too. Because it's not just for our benefit that we've been made alive in Christ. 
It's for those around us as well. Is there someone in your life who you need to reach out to this week? Perhaps someone who used to who used to see regularly, who you were in a connect group with, who maybe you saw at church, perhaps you've seen them occasionally over Zoom, but maybe they've drifted away over the past 18 months and just need that jolt of feeling alive in Christ. You don't know how much of an impact just getting in touch again and reconnecting that circuit might have on their life. A couple of months ago, I bought this beautiful mid-century sideboard from a second-hand furniture shop called TCL Reuse. We had it delivered, and once the poor delivery guys had managed to manoeuvre it into my living room, uh, one of them, let's call him Mark, just casually asked if I'd be happy for them to pray with me, which took me by surprise, but of course I said yes, and they proceeded to ask for God's blessing on me and my house and everyone who came through the door. It was beautiful. But uh, as the prayer ended, it pretty much went along these lines. Amen. Okay, bye. And they pegged it out the door. I don't know why they're in such a rush. Maybe they're just rushing to the next job. Um, Maybe they're feeling awkward about the prayer. But of course, I suddenly had loads of questions. I wanted to know their story, uh, how this came to be. Do they pray for everyone that they deliver bulky furniture to, like furniture and a prayer? Uh, And so as they were walking out, I was sort of asking them lots of questions. And uh, it turns out that TCL stands for Teen Challenge London. Now, if any of you have read The Cross and the Switchblade by David Wilkerson, uh, Teen Challenge is the programme he set up in Brooklyn in the 1960s to help rehabilitate those recovering from substance abuse and addiction. It's now a global network of Christian rehab centres that have helped countless people across the world, including, it seems, these two delivery guys. So they were already on their way out, heading off to the next job, but Mark was practically bubbling over with his testimony of what God had done. 18 months ago, he said, I was addicted to heroin. I was living on the streets. Uh, I was days away from dying. I should be dead. But God saved my life. Big guy upstairs saved me. I was brought into the Teen Challenge Rehab Centre. I gave my life to Christ. I got clean. And now look at me. I'm delivering furniture. I'm studying for qualifications. I've got my own place. All thanks to my Lord and Saviour, he said, pointing at the sky. And then they were gone. And I just stood there for a minute, feeling really challenged. When was the last time I had shared my testimony with that much enthusiasm? When did you? I remember reading The Cross and the Switchblade as a teenager and thinking, well, if I had a dramatic rescue story like that, then of course I'd tell everyone what Jesus had done for me. But, you know, starting a story, well, I grew up in a Christian family, isn't quite as gripping. But the truth is, we do all have stories like that. We were all dead in our sins, destined to a life separated from God. God came down in the person of Jesus and rewrote our story. We've been brought back to life, resurrected with him. David Guzik, in his Enduring Word Bible commentary, says this. Self-imposed religion is man reaching to God, trying to justify himself by keeping a list of rules. Christianity is God reaching down to man in love through Christ. True Christian holiness isn't rooted in fear or legalism, but in the gospel. God has made us alive in Christ, so let's live like that. How? Well, I've I've focused on verses 8 to 23 today, but the truth is Paul actually gave us the answer right at the beginning of today's passage. Verse 6 to 7 says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. 
God has cleared the way for us, given us Jesus so that we can have a restored relationship with him. But we still have to actively choose that life. It's not just a one-time salvation. We have to continue to live our lives in him, or as Paul says in another of his letters, to keep in step with the Spirit. You are a new creation, so live like it. Don't get swayed by people telling you that you need to act in a certain way, pray certain prayers, do certain things to get right with God. Prioritise your relationship with him. Get that foundation secure before you build on it, so you can then serve and give and pray, not out of a sense of obligation or duty, but as an overflow of a fruitful relationship. Likewise, don't get distracted from God himself. Don't settle for the busyness of Christianity and miss the person behind it. Reassess your schedule. Now's the perfect time as we start to come out of lockdown. When you look back at the past week or a typical week, do you see more time spent in meetings and church commitments than actually just spending time with God one-on-one? We need a balance of the two. What about the rest of your daily life? What do you spend your free time doing and thinking about? Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, recently tweeted this. Religion is what you do with your solitude, says William Temple, i.e. the things we dream, daydream about most readily and instinctively when nothing else is occupying our thoughts, reveal what we live for and serve. If we want to live for and serve Jesus Christ, we need to grab hold of that sense. Jesus has already paved the way for us. We need to live as new creations. If we want to experience that abundant life that he has promised, we need to walk in step with the Spirit, to strengthen our foundations in him, to encourage one another in this church community, and to ask God in his infinite grace to pour out his Spirit on us again. So if you're feeling spiritually parched right now, I'm just going to pray for us in a moment. Jesus said in John 7, 37-38, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within him. More than anything, God just wants us to come to him, to talk to him, to rest in his presence and to listen to his voice. So we're going to do that now. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. That because of what he did for us, we can have a relationship with you and be spiritually alive in Christ. I pray that right now you would pour out your spirit on us, that you would refresh and revive us with your streams of living water. Would you inspire us to keep drawing close to you as we live out our lives as the new creations that you have made us to be. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this talk from the Christchurch London podcast. To hear other talks or find out more about our Sunday services, head to ChristchurchLondon.org.